topic is Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu. Uh, big topic. Let me say at the outset, maybe it's obvious to you, but that here we will try to see how the Torah presents Moshe. That is to say that within our tradition, for any number of reasons, Moshe becomes something very different. For, for the rabbinic tradition, or so we, parts of the traditional world, he basically he's a someone who's studying Torah all the time and teaching Torah, which is certainly part of his uh, part of his description. But we see him basically as the head of the Sanhedrin. He's all the time studying Torah. That's what he does. <coughs> the Rambam, on the other hand, made it turn him into a philosopher. He's a, he's a philosopher. So it's also, we're not going to take those uh, paths, uh, but just to see how the Chumash presents it, I think that's uh, very interesting. How does the Torah seem to present Moshe? By the Torah, I include all the books of the Torah, beginning with Shemot. It's conceivable, that, of course, that the book of Devarim, for example, paints a very different picture of Moshe than do the other books of the Torah. Wouldn't be surprised, I think it's actually true. But we'll see if we get there. We'll begin with the beginning, which is the birth of Moshe, and we'll proceed, and we'll try to be, uh, it's not possible, but we'll try to be uh, objective about what the Chubbish seems to say. Yes? We can start yet. you have a question. Okay, go ahead. Yeah? Yeah? Not both do that too. One, do you oppose the text as if every book has its own approach, also Moshe said, and uh, 
even without all the biblical criticism that dates for him to a different time, even without all that, it's clear that the book has, seems to have a different agenda. Furthermore, it seems to contradict at every turn everything that came before. So I would say that Sefer Dvarim should be viewed not just as an independent book, it's all independent in a certain way, but that really it, it has a totally different feel to it and probably a different uh, purpose than the other books of the Torah. Sefer Breshit, obviously, all of them are. I, I read them independently, but I also read them, Breshit is part of Shemal, and Shemal continues Sefer Breshit. If you ask the question, what is the importance or relevance of this, I think it has, in terms of understanding the book, I think it has a relevance, because where, where something begins and ends gives shape to the book. If you read Breshit, it's just chapter 50 in a book of 200 chapters or something like that, you read it one way. If you read the story of Joseph as a concluding story, then suddenly that opens up all other possibilities. You can, the Joseph story then is bound up with the creation story. You see all kinds of connections, and they're not just structural points, but the structure and the meaning are, I believe, deeply connected. So my short answer is I see them, each one as separate in a sense, but the Varim I see truly as separate. I, because the story of the Chumash actually ends in Sefer Babibar. They're poised to enter the land. It's the land ends of the Torah. The last story is about the tribe of Joseph and the other tribes having a fight and being reconciled. That's how the book ends. Then Eilad's Varim is supposedly a recap of the earlier stories. It's not a recap because it actually contradicts it, but it tells similar stories, has a different agenda, has a whole slew of new mitzvot, presents itself as the last words of Moshe, looks forward to a different vision of the land, etc. And maybe there, and I, I think it has a different conception of God there as well. But that's another story. I think that that's the short answer. Now, let us begin with Moses' birth, and we will see how, how, how this goes. I mean, we want to get, obviously, to the interactions of Moshe with God and the people, but we're going to begin with the birth of Moshe, which of course is always very important. The story that we're well familiar with, which is chapter 2 of Exodus, remote. And it's interesting, let's see if we can come up with anything new. Always something new. The story begins in this way. Chapter 2, page 114. A man went out of the house of Levi and he took a daughter of Levi. That's how the story begins. The first chapter details the persecutions of the Jews in Egypt. A new pharaoh emerges. Joseph and the generation have died. And the new pharaoh sets out to enslave and to abuse the Jewish people. Uh, his claim is that they are a potential danger, unfaithful to Egypt. They may join up with the enemy. There are so many of them. And he sets out to, to deplete them and also to uh, control them. That's chapter 1. They're described in chapter 1 as being Abadim. They're described in chapter 1 as the subject of the Inui, of Paro, and the, and the Egyptians. And chapter 1 tells us as well about the midwives who refuse to obey the command of Paro and who, the command being kill the boys, and take the girls, spare the girls, take the girls. And the midwives refuse to do this, they're God-fearing. 
At which point, Pharaoh gives a general edict to everybody, publicly, that the boy should be thrown into the river, the boy should be killed. That's chapter 1. That's, what it be, that's how the book begins. Chapter 2 is the birth of Moshe. That's the second chapter. But the story is told, interesting. what interests us is the way the story is told and the implications of that. So the first verse is, Vayeroch Ishmi Beit Levi, Vayikach Et Bat Levi. A man went from the house of Levi and he marries a daughter of Levi. So immediately you see one thing in this first verse, that Levi is being, the emphasis in verse number one is that this is a story about Levi. Let's start with that. The rabbinic tradition is bothered by something over here. It's hard to know what they're really bothered by. We know what they say. We know they, what truly bothers them. We never know. Are they using the question to build something up? Is it really a problem? But the problem that they are troubled by, the, the small problem, is that Moshe is born, the story is about the birth of Moshe. A man, a man marries a woman and they have a child. Okay. But the problem is, for the rabbinic tradition, it sounds like he's, this is the first child they're having. But, but, but we know in the Chumash that, first of all, even in this chapter, we know that he has another, that he has a sister who's watching from afar. Now, of course, one could have answered that question in a very simple way, in terms of this chapter. Mm-hmm. That the sister can be a sister, a half-sister. It doesn't have to be this particular woman. A man may have ten wives. His sister could be a sister from... But the, but the rabbinic tradition doesn't want to go in that direction for another reason, which is not only do we know that he has a sister that the Torah says later is Miriam, but we also know he has a brother. And presumably the brother is older than Moses because the Torah, now presumably the Torah says that he's three years older. When they stood before Pharaoh, Moses was 80 and Aaron was 83. It means he has an older brother. So if he has an older brother and the story is telling us about the miraculous birth of Moshe, how they managed to uh, escape the, how Moses survives, but what about Aaron and Miriam? Well, Miriam's a girl, okay, but what about Aaron? How did he survive? You could give a hundred answers. You could say maybe the edict just, just took place. It was last week. And Aaron was born, so there's no need. <coughs> but it does sound like they're just getting married. So what is going on? That's what's bothering the rabbinic tradition. Now, is it actually what's bothering them? I'll get to it. I don't know. It's a question. Fine. So the, but the point of all this is the following. That therefore, they think, or they say, this calls for reinterpretation of verse number one. A man went from the house of Levi and took the daughter of Levi. By Yikach and Bat Levi, they interpreted the following. Some is actually so ingenious. You know, you know what? So what? Incredible method. I never noticed this. This is the seminal story. I mean, Freud wrote a book about it. We'll get to Freud. We'll get to Freud. We'll get to Freud. We'll get to Freud, we'll get to Freud later. We'll get to Okay. Right. Well, yeah. That's what's so shocking. Not that you pointed it out. Okay, but. <laughs> okay. Here's, here's the point. The, uh, their understanding of Vayikach and Bat Levi. Sometimes the Midrash says something that can't be the shot. Sometimes you wonder, maybe it is. Here they say Vayikach, he took Bat Levi, they're interpreting, 
that Bat Levi does not mean the daughter of Levi. In other words, it means his daughter of Levi. In other words, the point is, Vayikach and Bat Levi, the Midrash says, he took the advice of Bat Levi, his own daughter, a man of the house of Levi, took the advice of his own daughter, which would be Miriam in their thinking. He took Miriam, what is Miriam's advice? So Miriam's advice is the following. This couple's been married for 20 years, who knows? And they have two children, right? They have a boy and a girl. Maybe they have a dog also, who knows? They, they right? This is, the, this is the family, so boy and fight. Then, the edict comes out, all boys should be killed. So Miriam, so they separate. Because they don't want to have any more children because we have a child, the child's going to be killed. Says the Medrash, he took then the advice of his own daughter. What was the advice of Miriam goes to him? And Miriam says to, to, to him or to them, this is not good. Because, first of all, who says you're going to have a boy? Now they can test, but in those days you didn't, never knew. Maybe you'll have a girl. Why should you punish the girls? Take, take, your, take your chances, you know? 50-50. He then took the advice of his own daughter who advised them to get back together again. And they have another child after they've separated and this child is Moses. That's the Medrash. Right. You say to yourself, it's very interesting. But what is it actually all about? Now what's, what's very interesting is my wife actually wrote an article about this many years ago. She's written many things, two books and all that stuff. It's also a book about her. Vision did work. It's pretty good. Somebody writes a book about you, you know, it's a good thing. So, she claimed in this article, one thing she's written is the most popular thing she ever wrote. I don't know why. Maybe it's because about Miriam. But the claim that, among other things, the claim she makes is that you have Midrashim. We don't know how these much Midrashim actually evolved. But we suspect that there was a very extended study of, of different personalities or whatever. Like, for example, Miriam. And there was a big, gigantic Midrash about Miriam. And when you're studying Midrash, it gets broken up into pieces. But we know, for example, there's another Midrash about Miriam, famous Midrash about Miriam. The Midrash about Miriam, the famous one is this. Later in the Chumash, in Bamidbar chapter 12, that chapter begins, famous chapter, Vatidaber Miriam Biaron Moshe. That Miriam and Aaron, speaking of the brother and sister, spoke against Moses. Right? Why do they speak against Moses? He had married a Kushite. Kushite means an Ethiopian, but Kush means someone who's totally other. It may also mean the story of black woman, it's possible. Yeah. That they didn't like the fact that she was black. Well, let's say get black, she's different, she's other. She's outsider. Right? Chapter 12, verse number 1. For in fact, he had taken a Kushite woman. And they said, verse number 2, Harak ach Moshe diber Hashem? Did God only speak to Moses? God spoke to us as well. This is going to be a very important story for us about Moses. This is a critical story. Because God then defends Moses and describes his role. That's a critical, critical story. And for the medievals, it was the Rambam, the Ramban, so critical. But they said, did God only speak to Moses? He's the only prophet. Didn't God speak to us as well? By Yishma Hashem, and God heard them talking. Now, that verse, you see the verse? Chapter 12, verse number 1 and 2 of Bamidbar. 
the verse before you get to the midrash or anything else, the verses on this, on its face are very troubling <coughs> because we don't understand what is the connection between verse number one and verse number two. <coughs> verse number one says they were Miriam spoke to Aaron. Chapter 12, verse number 1 and 2 of Bamidbar. You're looking in the wrong book. It may all be one big book, but they are separate books. So Bamidbar, let's find the, t- the page here. 312? 310. Okay, 310. So they said, in verse number 1, Miriam, notice, by the way, the Hebrew uses the verb Batidaber. That's the singular feminine. It didn't say Vayidabru. It says Batidaber. That means the instigator is Miriam. Aaron is hearing it and Miriam is speaking and Miriam said right was said something against Moses she spoke against Moses he had married the Cushite woman for in fact he had married a Cushite woman and what, what's the next verse by Yomru they said right they said now it shifts to they did God only speak to Moses what is it he's the only prophet aren't we also prophets doesn't God speak to us so the first question is, what is the connection between marrying the Kushite woman and their complaint? He married the Kushite woman. What's he? Why, why is he marrying the non-Jew? Why is he marrying the outsider? Why? Okay. But the second verse says, what is it? Is he? He's the only prophet. Didn't God speak to us as well? And we could interpret and say, well, maybe he did. He thinks he's so special. He do whatever he wants. What's so special about him? We're also special. That's possible to read it that way, but the Midrash didn't want to read it that way. So the Midrash invents a quite ingenious interpretation. It's brilliant, actually. And here's their interpretation. Their interpretation is that the two things are actually connected. First of all, who is the Kushite woman? So I would say the Kushite woman is a Kushite woman. Who knows who she is? She's a... There is a midrash someplace or other. She's a princess from uh, from Ethiopia, an Ethiopian princess. The midrash, we never hear about the Kushite before or after. So the midrash doesn't like that. It's anonymous Kushite. So the midrash says the Kushite is actually Tsipora, his wife. He has one wife by name, Tsipora. Right. So the problem is, if first of all, we're hard pressed to say the Kushite is actually Tsipora. Sipora is not a Kushite. Right. She's a Midianite. Let's start with that. That didn't seem to bother the Midrash. It talks about why is she a Kushite? Because she's, she's outstanding. She's different, whatever. But the problem is, why even they spoke against Moses because he married the Kushite? Why are they waking up in Bamidbar chapter 12? He marries the Kushite in Exodus chapter 2. And not only that, it sounds like Exodus chapter 18, they separate. Achar Shiluchel. Yitro brought her back to him. But did she actually live with him or not? Are they separate? Who knows? We don't know. Maybe they're together. But anyway, what are you complaining 40, 50, 80 chapters later? So the Midrash says, no. They weren't complaining. They weren't complaining that he married her. That wasn't Miriam's complaint. She had a different complaint. That he wasn't living with her. Right? They spoke against Moses concerning the Kushite Sipora that he had married, he had once married her, he once had married her. But what happened? He separated from her. Now why did he separate from her? So Miriam, and they say, we know why he separated from her, because he's a prophet. He's a holy man. 
So therefore he separated. So I said, what do you mean? We're also holy people. Did we separate from our spouses? We're married people. We live a normal life. Who says you have to be celibate? You have to separate from your wife or your spouse just because you're a prophet. That, according to the Midrash, is their, is their argument. Now, it's the thing. First of all, let's make the first point. The first point is the article is actually a very good article. The first point is that the claim over here, Miriam's complaint, was the main talker in the, in the story of the Cushite woman, and Miriam's complaint in Exodus chapter two, verse number one, according to the Midrash, is exactly the same complaint. In each case, she's complaining about a couple that's not living together. In the first instance, it's her parents, actually. In the second instance, it's, it's her brother. That's point number one. And then, Devorah goes on to argue. This is a very interesting question that the academic Talmudists do all the time. If you have a sugya that appears in four places, one of the questions they always ask is, what is the, what is the core sugya? What is the seminal sugya? In other words, her, her argument, Devorah being, that the core the core text is actually the one in, in Bamidbar. The Bamidbar text is the core text and the Exodus reading is a function of the, of the Bamidbar text. Now what's interesting about the study of Midrash is that it's oftentimes we could say it's not what the text seems to be saying. But typically, even if it's not what this text seems to be saying, they're always picking up on something which isn't, if not in one particular text, is in a set of texts. In this case, the Rashbam, by the way, the idea that the complaint against Moses in chapter 12 was separating from Tzipporah is the prevalent rabbinic view. It appears all over the place. The Rashbam, of course, being the simple Pashtan, rejects that. And he makes a very obvious point about verse number one. It says, and the Miriam spoke to Aaron concerning Moses, about the Kushite woman he had taken for he had taken the Kushite woman so the Rashbam says why does the Torah say for he had taken the Kushite woman it refers to Tzipporah everybody knows that he married Tzipporah so for he had taken the Kushite woman he interprets their, their complaint was actually true in other words he did marry even though the Torah didn't tell us earlier in fact it's so Kisha Kushit Wakach the Midrash takes it differently the Midrash's interpretation is for they complained against Moses concerning the Kushite, the one he had formerly married. So he's still married to that, her, they're not divorced, but they're separated. So concerning that woman whom he once had actually married and taken and now separated from, that was the complaint. The Rashbam rejects it. The Rashbam says no. The Torah says it's true actually that Moses married the Kushite. He married out of the faith. He married someone who's outside, who's the Kushite. And that's the Rashbam. So now, he married another, someone else. Right, so according to the simple reading of the Rashbam, he married another woman, a Kushite woman. Maybe she's a princess, maybe she's not, who knows what she is. But the Midrash, though, takes it very differently. The Midrash has the complaint of Miriam in that story, and the complaint of... So in other words, the Midrash is actually interpreting something very important, which is, it's trying to explain what is driving the Midrash? You never know. What is, it's driving? is it embarrassing it, the, to the rabbis that he married again? Or that he married the Kushite? No, God, God actually defends them. Why are we embarrassing yeah. him? It, 
Miriam and Aaron don't like it. They don't like the fact that the leader of the people is married to someone who's not one of the people. But the point of the Midrash is to explain, so ingenious, the connection between verse 1 and 2. What does marrying the Kush have to do with being a prophet? So the Midrash says that what disturbs them is that Moshe is not, a, is not really living like a, a married man. He's, he's separated from his wife. Now that idea that Moses separated from his wife is found in many rabbinic texts and has a basis in the Torah too. After the, after the revelation of Sinai, God said to Moses, tell them to go back to their tents. means go back to their, their houses, their wives or whatever. But you stay here with me. Which the Midrash reads, they can go back to their tents. But you, you can't. You have to live separate from your wife. And the reason is the following, which of course is the point of chapter 12 of, of, of the book of Bamidbar. The difference, which they had said, isn't Moses the same as us? He's a prophet, we're a prophet. The point of the chapter, which is the main point of the chapter, is to distinguish between Moses and Aaron and Miriam. And what is the difference between Moses and Aaron and Miriam in that chapter? The main difference between them. That's a very important chapter, by the way. But what is the main distinction for our purposes? Which is? Yes? Well, I wasn't going to... I was just thinking to myself that um, in our tradition, we don't think about holiness and abstinence right. among us in a contemporary culture. And that at the end, when the Torah says, there never arose another prophet like Moshe, right. maybe that's some way of saying, he was the only one that did it this way. But he's not the only one. He's not the only one. Not at all. There are others based on Moshe. So pretty important people. There are many models, of the, but the point is, the main distinction between Moses and them is this. No, no, Aaron's also told that. Aaron, the, the lady, will join you. The difference is this, is a very important point. They're prophets and he's a prophet, but the prophecies are not the same. The difference is this, their prophecies, they only can receive prophecy when they're ready to receive it. They need preparation for prophecy. The point of that chapter, the pshat, it's actually pshat, the point is that Moses is always ready to receive the prophecy. In other words, it's not that he has to prepare himself. It's that God can speak to him at any instant. So he always must be in a state of preparation, which apparently involves separation from his, from his wife. And you see this at, 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 at Harsinai. Harsinai, Moses says to separate from you. Now, did God say this is a good question? We'll get to these questions that Judith Plasco raises in her work. Actually, it's a very good question. God said, tell the people to prepare. Moses says, stay away from your wives. It's problematic on a hundred levels, but we'll get to it. But the point is that God is saying to them a very simple point that you may be a prophet as well, but you're, you're not me. You're not Moses. He's a different kind of prophet. He's the only, there's no one, no one else like Moses. Right? I speak to him face to face, I speak to him differently, but also he's always ready to receive the word. Therefore, he's in a state of readiness at all times. You're not. You live a normal life, that's great, but, you know, but, but, but you're not Moses. Therefore, don't speak against my servant Moses. That's the point of the story. So the Midrash actually is picking this up. In other words, that's how the Midrash understands the whole story. When you read it, you say, it actually could be the Pshat. But my point is, or Torah's point, is that that chapter, which for us is an incredibly important chapter, because that's what Moses' role is defined as being other, 
that Miriam in that chapter, according to the Midrash at least, is critiquing him not for, not for marrying the Kushite, but for not marrying the Kushite, for separating from the, whom the Medrash reads as actually Tzipora. The Medrash reads as she's a Midianite, but in a certain way, Kushite becomes, it's like today in Israel. It's like in Israel today. The certain industries in Israel, this is a different conversation, are controlled by non are run by non Jews. You want to build a house. 95% of the construction workers are Arabs. Your mother or father is ill. We need home care. Mm-hmm. So, Filipino. So, I heard someone talking in the street. What, your mother's not well. Yes, we got a Filipino from, uh, from uh, Sri Lanka. The point is, <laughs> the, the Filipino has become, yeah. which is, that's, that's, how the Mecca, that's how this is the Kushite. That's what I wanted to yes. Isn't it possible, I was thinking, because I had always thought that, that Tipora was a Kushite. Isn't it possible that she could be uh, of Midianite descent and still be a Kushite? Not really. No? Okay. She's Yitro's daughter. I mean, she's the Kohen oh, Midian. But Kushite can be Kush is Ethiopian. ethnic rather than, I don't mean if it can be uh, oh, can a be race this, rather than... It can be a description. It's certainly part. That's what I'm saying, that Kushite is like in the Megillah, Yehoduviat Kush. Kush is like Timbuktu. He's the king of Hodu Viyad Kush. It's the way of saying he's our king of the world. Hodu Viyad Kush, the far corners of the world. I don't know about Hodu, but Kush could be that. It could be that way. It's possible. But the Midrash is saying, the point about the Midrash, coming back to our story over here, is that He took the advice of his own daughter. The Bat Levi is intended to answer a whole interesting school of, first of all how clean Moses is born what happened to the his older brother and sister one of them is watching him in the story but it's not a story about the couple it's not about the biography of the couple of course not but so it's a biography of the hero and, and right. anybody agree I agree it skips over the other stuff but the, but the better is still bothered because it does sound like they're now getting married they have this first child but we know that he has they have other kids my point is you don't know. Is the Midrash really bothered by this problem? It's a problem. Or is the Midrash using these difficulties in the text, which are there, to construct a picture of not so much in this verse of, of the father and the mother, but of the sister, Miriam, who is a very important character in the Chumash. Miriam is a very important character, one of the few female characters that we have, and she's actually very interesting, and she's a powerful woman. She has a real... She's Moses' sister. She's really a important person in the Chumash so the fact is that you don't know you can't tell but he uses the difficulties of the verse to tell us something about Miriam now actually even though the course is about Moshe but Miriam will surface on more than one occasion yes what do you want to say I think the main question in my mind here is why is everybody anonymous because we are keeping talking about Okay, I'll get to that. Okay, okay. That, that I can answer. Yes, yes, I will I solve the problem. Uh, that's, that, that, that I spoke, that I know. Go ahead. I'll get to it. Yeah. So, is it possible that Miriam is actually a prophet herself and that she knows that this is the time... That's the Midrash. Right, for them to be together so they can have... That's the Midrash. That's what the Midrash says. Okay, but at the Midrash says, Miriam HaNeviyah, right? Right? The Torah calls it... Torah calls her a prophet. Torah says she's a prophet. That's what they're picking up. Well, right? What's the verse? Patikach Miriam Hanaviyah, at the at the sea. And Miriam the prophet is Aaron's sister. So it's explicit. That's the midrash. She says to her parents, "This child's going to save us." 
So That's the Midrash. If, yeah. What if at yeah. the end in the Midbar yes. doesn't quite work because she's obviously punished in some way for this talk. But what if in some way it's the opposite? She actually is saying lakaf. The word lakaf is taken twice yes. in those sentences. What if she's saying Moshe should not be concerning himself now with a woman? That whereas in the beginning she was saying don't separate, be together, Maybe she's actually thinking he's taking this woman. His mind isn't on the things. That Maybe but that's not the midrash. The midrash doesn't. That's totally opposite of what the midrash says. Right. You could, in the simple reading of it, it seems to bother them that he married a black woman. That, that's clear. Yeah. Because the punishment is she turns white as snow. It says. So I presume the white as snow, in contrast to the dark, to the blackness, and the Torah critiques a kind of racism over here. Okay, whatever. But my point is that the midrash is reading it in a very interesting way. Now about the anonymity of chapter two that I'll get to back. Chapter and verse of where she specifically calls a prophet. Yeah. 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 As to the song of the sea. That's chapter fifteen, Matikat towards the end of chapter fifteen. I'll get to the anonymous business in a minute later on. Now, that's first verse number one. Fatar now we have the birth of Moses. I'll get I'll get to it I'll get to it. <laughs> woman conceived and gave birth to a son. Yes, chapter chapter two. The story is about Moshe. We're talking about his birth. First, we got discussed a bit about verse number one. What? Shemot, Exodus, page in this translation, page one hundred and fourteen. You have a you have a different you have, you have a different translation, but it's Exodus chapter two, verse number. Now we're up to verse number two. So far, we spent time in verse number one. Long time. The woman conceived his birth. Vatera otoki tovu, irachim. The woman conceived and gave birth. She saw kitovu that he was good, so she hid him for three months. Here, the question is self-evident, of course. What does it mean to say she saw that he was good? First of all, what mother thinks that the newborn child is bad? I've never yet met one yet. What was it? Vatera Tokitovu. She saw he was good. So the Ramban, actually, not here but in Genesis, in Breshit, makes the following observation about the word Tov. When God creates the world, God saw that it was Tov, right? That's what it said. We just read it. God created the world, God saw that it was good. So the Ramban asked the question. I think that Milton asked the same question in Paradise Lost, the same Kasha. He says, It's one thing to say, you know, you, you, you buy a house, you want you call somebody to design, to, to, to build your kitchen. He comes in with his blueprints and he shows you everything and he has a whole, this is what it's going to look like, and then he builds it. And you, after he builds it, you say to yourself, one second, this looks nothing like the original blueprints. So what, what? You know, he said, you know something, I thought it was gonna, the, the design looked pretty good, so I did it. At the end of the day, it looks, it looks different. Okay, we, that happens all the time. But what does it mean to say that God saw that it was good? Doesn't God know what it's going to look like? Uh-huh. So the Ramban says, it doesn't mean that it's good. Tov, the Ramban says, sometimes does not mean that it's good. Sometimes it means something very different, which means it's, it, it, is, it shall be sustained. It's viable. In other words, the Ramban makes the interesting claim that when God, when, when God creates something, this is coming straight out of the Greek philosophers, whether he knows it or not. But the point is, we, we assume, we have the simple principle, 
that when somebody creates, when somebody is, is there, and now it's not there, we ask the question, why is it not there? Entropy, whatever. The object in motion remains in motion. It's one of the first words throw that happens. Object in motion remains in motion. But for the Greeks, for Aristotle, that's not true. In other words, you throw something. Aristotle asks the question, why does it continue to move? He has all kinds of causes. Why does it continue to go from here to there? What makes it continue? That's the Greek thinking. So the Ramban says, that's what it means. It means, God said, let there be light. There's light. Okay. Why is there still light? And the answer is, God's sustaining will is what keeps it going. Says the Ramban, that's what the word Tov means. God knows it's good, but it means God wants it to continue. So along those lines, that's the way the Ramban would explain, maybe he actually does explain, but remember this verse. Vatera Oto, woman gave birth. Maybe it was even a premature birth. Sounds like maybe she gave birth prematurely. She hides it for three months. So maybe she gave birth in the sixth month. Maybe it's a, you know, an early birth. Vatera Oto Kitovu. Since he was born prematurely, will the child survive or not survive? But she saw Kitov, that the child could actually live. Once she saw the child could live, she is determined that the child will live, so she hides the child for three months. Whether the child is stillborn or something like that, or about to die, couldn't survive, what, what could you do? Definitely make efforts to keep him. But since Tov, since she sees that he could survive, because Tov, that's what the Ramban says, she then makes efforts to make sure he can survive by hiding him. That's what sits the nail. That's the Ramban. But Rashi has a different way. Yeah. I have my different way or Yeah, maybe you're Rashi, who knows? Yeah, right. and now that and they, uh, yes. Rashi you compare it to Boeshi, after yes. you ought to you expect naming. But here she doesn't name And it's opposite that it's only back up all later with Okay, I'll, 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 you said two interesting things. Let's, let's, we, let's leave the naming out for later. But let's name with the first point, which is Rashi. Rashi makes the comments, Vatera Otoki Tova. What does Rashi say? She saw he was good. Let me show he was good. It says Rashi three words. The house was filled with light. That's what Rashi says. Now what does Rashi mean? It's a, Rashi's a midrash. When Moses was born, the house was filled with light. But what does that mean? So it means two things. First of all, it's true, actually. Somebody, I mean, it's exciting. Newborn baby, that house is different. The house is filled with light. Okay, we understand it. But Rashi is pointing us in a different direction. Rashi is pointing out that the term, she saw Kitov, that the term Tov first appears in the Torah <coughs> in terms of creation. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth, and the first created thing was the light. And what, Vayahu Kitov. God saw that the light was good. So what Rashi is getting at, I think, is that the birth of this child is something very special. That, and that you should read this verse as a kind of creation story. That what the Chumash is saying is, the book of Exodus, we always think of the book of Breshit as being about creation. But the book of Exodus is also about creation. The creation of this people. The Jewish nation is created. And the creation begins, says Rashi, with, with, this, with this verse, something special is happening, Kitov. There's a connection between the light of Genesis, the light of creation, and the creation of this particular child. And once that happens, once that happens, 
So the mother sets out to make sure the child will survive. But the Midrash, of course, always takes the idea and runs with it. What's Vatitzbeneu? What's the word? What is Vatitz? To hide, right? The word Tzafon. The word, why? Actually, I was thinking this morning, why is Tzafon, which is the north, is the relationship between the word Tzafon, which appears in the Chumash, and the word Vatitzbeneu? And I, that's in Yermio. But why is that so, actually? What does Tzafon mean? So it's like this. The sun, it is left, but, but, the, but, but the point is, I think it's something else. The sun is rising in the east and setting in the west. Just talked to one of my kids the other day about this. It goes from east, it goes from east to west. How does it travel from east to west? They say this is east and that's west. That is east. That's east and west. Does it go that way? Does it go that way? Or does it go that way? The sun, at least in this hemisphere, always go south. Correct? That's how the sun moves. Do you know that? No? We haven't learned, right? The sun travels from east to west in a southerly direction. It means the north is where the sun never goes. So the north is related to the idea of being dark, darkness, because the sun is not there. So from the darkness, probably, segues into the idea of being hidden, not being visible. I'm sure that's right, actually. It's an interesting idea. Isn't it nice? Yeah. So that's uh, that's Tzafon and Tzafun. The point, of course, is Vatitzpineu means something else, which I think is the idea, it's what Abba said before, and I will explain. The idea that what's happening over here is someone who was born, the fact that she hides them upon birth carries with it, I think, another significance, which is the, that the Redeemer himself is actually hidden. The idea of, the, of, of someone who's born, other religions have this as well, the idea that the one who's born is actually the Redeemer, but, but the idea of redemption being hidden is actually very interesting, and we have this in our, in our own tradition, actually. We have this in our own tradition, because at the most important ritual of the Jewish people, which obviously is one core ritual of the Jewish people, it's called the Seder, that is the obvious core ritual of the Jewish people, and there's a Seder. And at the Seder we eat the Apikomen. The Apikomen represents, among other things, the redemption. It represents the Paschal sacrifice. It represents Gula, represents redemption. In the acrostic that the Ashkenazim say before the Seder, or it's written in Molyo Haggadus, what do we call the Apikomen? Safun, that which is hidden. So the idea that the idea that redemption is actually hidden from us, that only God knows when the true redemption will come. No, no people don't know. We don't know. The Arabic tradition is abounds with, with, with false messiahs. About many of them. Not one, not two, but many. People who think they know when redemption is going to come. What do we actually know? Very little. But the redemption now, he called it, is called Safun. So over here as well. Over here, you have the idea of him being hidden on birth probably carries with it a deeper significance not just that she hide her from Pharaoh because the Egyptians might kill him but he himself is the hidden one the, the Redeemer is actually hidden the Midrash connects it to something else this is not of course a Midrash but now we should appreciate the Midrash the Midrash says the following in the beginning God created heaven and the Midrash 
And right now I can't recollect what drives the Midrash, but the Midrash makes the following claim, that the light of creation, the light of creation is not our light. God created the light, and God saw the world can't stand with that, with that kind of light. The world can't survive with that particular light. So what did God do? God hid that light. It's called Or Midrashim. Or, or, or Hatzafun. Or Hatzafun. It's very famous. The hidden light. God reserved the light for the world to come, for the righteous. That's Or Hatzafun. The Midrash picks up on this over here. Or Hatzafun. I wonder if it's actually coming from here. You never know what the genesis of these, these Midrashim is. That when Moses was born, she hides him. She saw it that Kitov. The first Kitov, says Rashi, is the light. I mean, there's something special. That's special about this kid. But this is going to be the Redeemer. As, as the prophet, his sister said, Miriam said, this one's going to redeem us. But the redemption is very, when he's born, redeem us, let's see if he survives, first of all. The, the Pharaoh finds out about him. The Egyptians find out. They'll throw him into the river. That's the previous, end of the previous chapter. So she has to hide him. She hides him for three months, maybe because she gave birth prematurely. So we're expecting a, a birth at nine months. She gave birth at six months. So for three months, he's pretty safe. But after that, maybe hey, people are going to start wondering, where's the child? That's verse number three. She couldn't hide him anymore. She took a teva. What's a teva? A teva, they translate here, a basket, a basket. But the word teva, of course, is an ark. What is an ark? This week's parsha, right? She took a little ark and she put him in it. What is the difference between a boat and an ark, by the way? A boat, a ship, and an ark. Ark is enclosed. No. Both could be enclosed too. In the wait, before you comment, in the parallel stories to the Noah story, in the ancient Near East, in Numa Elish, you believe them. The many stories, the precise parallels to the story of Noah. When you first see it, it's very shocking. You see the same story, the Sumerian story, loads of them. It's in those stories, I believe, I forget the name of the hero now, I'm blocking on it. He's on a ship, not an ark. What is the difference now between an ark and a ship? There's one main difference, which is what? Uh, a, a, a ship is to go somewhere, travel, and, and an ark is just to uh, protect. That's not the main difference. Okay. There's a big, more important difference between an ark and a ship. The material that is made. I don't think so. The, I, that's not the difference. I don't think. Because I thought the ark is made. It's a ship. The boat is made of wood. Well, the ark can be made of. True, but, so but so could a ship protect you, possibly. That's not the main difference. No, but, but it, but it has around it. Does. Right, but who says the ship can't be that? That's not the, the main difference between the, the Babylonian traditions about... It's the same story. You can't steer. That's you correct. Steer. The boat, you steer. The boat is something that the person controls where it goes. The ark does not. There's no way controlling it. Moses placed it in an ark. He's not going to steer it. He's probably about two weeks old or something. Who knows? He can't steer it. You can't control it. In the other stories of the ancient Near East about the flood, the stories are strikingly similar. I mean striking up to the raven and the dove and the birds. But they're different. That was Kasuto's point, but they're different. But anyway, the point is that the ark is not in your control. Right? Uh, right? 
when it talks about a ship, for example, in the in the piyut of the Ashkenazim on Yom Kippur night, Hineka Chomer, Hineka Hege Biyad Hamalach, right? The right, the 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 captain, the ship captain, steering the rudder of the ship, right? So the point is, the ark you don't control it. The ark is floating someplace. Moses is placed in the teva, and the question becomes a very simple question. We can distinguish between the materials of Moses, as Rashi does, of Moses' ark and Noah's ark. Okay, fine, wonderful. You can distinguish all you want. My question is a different one. Why does the Torah actually... Here you have a story. It's very striking. Verse number 2 told us that she saw that he was told. Ki tov. Tov is a Genesis word. It's the light. It's creation. So the story of Moses begins with this creation of the world. This next verse tells us about Noah. You can't tell me that's a coincidence that the Torah starts off with the first creation and the next verse is put inside an ark. But for goodness sake, that can't be a... Yes, it's, I know it's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing you've never saw it before. That's what's amazing. It's so obvious. You know what I mean? The question is a different one. The question is, okay, fine. We got Adam and Noah there. We understand. Why? The question is, what does that actually... That's what the Midrash is so sensitive to. What is it... Right, so part of it is the beginning. But, it, but these images, they, they speak in a hundred ways. At the point of the Midrashim, it's not as some people foolishly believe, to supplant the simple reading of the scripture. That's a humongous error, and it's, it's, it actually shows great disrespect for the Torah. That's the truth of it. They think they're respecting it, but they But, the Midrash knows what the Pshat is, of course. It understands. They say something else. These texts carry with them many different meanings. That's the point of the Midrash. And the question is, you have a story where this little child, newborn, is put inside a teva. The question is, what does the Chumash want? What, what does the Chumash want us to think about that? What does that bring to mind? Brings to mind the story of Noah, this week's parasha. But what specifically? What kind of images? What kind of thoughts does the Torah want to convey by having this boy put inside a teva? What, what is that about, actually? And I can think of several things. Well, yes. God is trying to take care. Could be so. It could be the It could be so that they are relying. In the Ark of Noah, as I said before, Noah doesn't steer the Ark, but God has promised, made promises to Noah that God will protect Noah. It could be that it recalls God's divine protection. Yes, what else? Um, that, that Noah is a man that walks with God, and this will be a man that walks with God, right. and that he's also different from everyone else. Right, that's the point I wanted to get to. One thing the Noah story, the key piece to Noah, you are the only one. There is nobody else. It's only you. And I think that is something that the Chumash wants us to consider over here. And this is the theme that throughout Moses' life, you have this theme in many places. It's not that there's no other good people out there. That's not true. There are some always good people out there. In the case of, that's not true in the model. In the story of the flood, the Torah presents to us a world which is totally corrupt and that no one's the only righteous person. But in the case of Israel and Moshe, it's not to say that there aren't good people out there, but the idea that Moses is different and singular, that appears in several stories of Moshe. It appears in the story that we referenced before, when Miriam and Aaron complain about Moshe. He's a prophet, we're a prophet, right? So God says to them, it's true, you're both prophets, 
or do different kind of prophets. The way he prophesies and the way you prophesy are very different. He has a different role. He, he sees things differently than you do. That's why he's different. And I treat him differently. The whole Bay team, now he's the one person in my house who's trustworthy. It's not that you're not good, you're very good, but you're not Moshe. Golden Care, he walks down the mountain. There's no, forget that, he's nobody else. He's alone. His own brother sold him out. There's no other person. And then the question is, how do you operate when you're... So this, the first time you meet Moshe over here, you have a story in chapter 1 where everybody is, has, in a way, has been enslaved. The Ravodim, Inui, Abdut, and everything like that. And what you don't have in chapter 1, I've talked about this so many times, is the word Ger. You don't have a sense in chapter 1 that the people see themselves as different. You know they're being beaten up, abused, and enslaved. But do they actually see themselves that way? We will see this week or next. Probably you'll get to it this week. They don't see. Only Moses understands that he's different. They don't understand it actually. But the idea of being alone, singular, different—that's what I think. One of the things that the Torah wants to, um, by reminding us about the story of Noah. Now, let me say something else, which is when the Torah—and this is how the Chumash works. Here you have a story of which we call Noah. What's interesting is, and this is what the Midrash also at its core understands, that when the Torah connects you to a particular text, usually it doesn't drop it. At some point in time, the Torah will resurface the story of Noah and Moshe in a very striking way. And it's, you'll see that not only will it resurface it, but one of, if not the most important story of this book, I think it's the, probably the core story of the Chumash, at the heart of that story, the Chumash will recall for us Noah. And how does, how does the Chumash recall Noah? Here he recalls it by mentioning a Teva. But later it recalls it by constantly playing on the word Noah over and over and over again. It's very striking. And there we have the contrast between Noah and Moshe. There's the great contrast. That in the story of Moshe later on, God makes Moshe an offer that God made Noah the same offer. Noah accepts the offer and Moses rejects the offer. The offer was, I'll destroy everybody and save you. Noah did what God taught, build yourself an ark. That's what Noah does. The Chumash, I don't believe, critiques Noah for that. I mentioned this on Tuesday, but that's what he does. God makes the same offer to Moses, actually twice, but the first time is in the story of the golden calf. I've seen the people that you took out of Egypt, they're totally corrupt, leave me alone, my anger will destroy them, and I will make you a great nation. That's essentially what God said to Noah. I'll build the world through you. The first world's not working. I'm sorry I made it. My bad, says God. Okay, just get rid of everything. Animal beast, we'll take, take some animals with you, and from you I'll build a new world. Build yourself an ark. Okay, that's what happens with Noah. God makes the same offer to Moshe. I'll destroy everybody. I'll make my nation through you. Says Moses, you won't do that. I refuse. And I plead with you to change your mind, and God changes God's mind. So my point is, the Chumash does not just mention Noah here. It mentions it in the context of Tov, of creation. This is a new creation. The book is about creation of the Jewish people, and it begins with the creation of Moshe, the birth of Moshe, the miraculous birth of Moshe. We'll see how this takes place. But it's not going to abandon the Mo- Moses Noah link. It's going to use it in the, the central story of the book, namely the Egil. Okay, then let's continue.
Right. She puts Moshe, it's interesting, she puts him in this little ark, right? She encloses him with pitch, she corks it with pitch. And she places this basket in the reeds by the side of the yard. The yard is the Nile. So she puts the basket Interesting, that express. Yeah, this rate we're never going to get too far, I know, but. So we'll have a second session. We'll have a hundred sessions, but I mean, yeah. the point is, Asfat Hayar is actually very interesting. She puts it Asfat Hayar. Asfat Hayar means by the side of. Safa is a word that appears not too often in the Chumash. Safa means lips, but it also means the side of something, right? It means lips, it means language. Let's start with that. Safa means language. Safa means, so it appears in one place in terms of language, only in the Torah, in one place, Tower of Babel. Safa Achad, right? Usually in Hebrew, the word for, for language is Lashon. In one story, it's Safa. Actually, it appears in two stories. It's very interesting. It appears in the Tower of Babel. The world spoke one Safa. God is going to mix up their Safa. The other place it appears, and the only other place it appears in the Chumash, in terms of language, is where? I don't think it's a coincidence, by the way. Because in one of the places in the Torah, with the word Safar as opposed to Lashon. Was it Gilda? No. About Moshe? Right. It's about Moshe. Right? Moshe says, <coughs> I have uncircumcised, I can't speak. It's interesting that the word Safar, right? Right? The word Safar appears in terms of Moshe. Now over here, we have something else about Moshe. He's placed al Safat Hayar. That expression to be placed al Safat Hayar appears later. Where does it appear later? It appears when they cross the sea. Vayar Yisrael at Mitzrayim made al Safat Hayar. How do you translate that, by the way? Please translate that for me. That Israel saw saw the Egyptians dead al Safat Hayar. What does that mean? There's an ambiguity in the verse. Right? Those who pray every day, or Shabbat, or whatever, we say this all the time. Right? What do we say it? Let's see. Shira Chadasha Shem Chugiri Lushimcha Asvat Ayam. What's that mean? Shira Chadasha, right? It's in the Davani, Shachas. She, they sang you a new song, a shira. They sang to you, asfatayam, at the edge of the yam. Yachad kulam hoduvi lichu v'yamru, Hashem yimrochi olam va'ed. It's the concluding section of the blessings of the Shema before Shmona Esri every morning, including Shabbat. The davening interprets the verse, which is not the simple reading of the verse. I don't think. What is the ambiguity? We say this all the time. What is the ambiguity in the verse? There's somebody else who didn't realize, said it, didn't realize it. Vayar Yisrael et Mitzrayim meit al svatayav is ambiguous. Does it mean that the Jews saw the Egyptians dead by the side of the, of the, of the sea? Or does it mean that the Jews saw the Egyptians dead 
when the Jews stood on the side of the sea. Which one is it? Vayar Yisrael Mitzrayim made al Svatayam. Is al Svatayam where they saw it from? Yes. Or did they see them dead on the side of the sea? Made al Svatayam. They died on the side of the sea. It could be neither one. But the davening assumes that they yeah. saw it from the side of the sea. Yeah. It says Shirach, right? It says, right? Shirach Adasha Shilchu Gyurim Lishimcha Asvatayam. They sang the song when they stood Asvatayam. What song did they sing? The song of the sea or the end of it? Hashem Yimrochu Yoram Ma'ed is the last verse of the song of the sea. Then we ask God to save us. Tu Yikuba Biyazrat Yisrael. Gal Yisrael. Moses is placed Asvatayam. That's how the story begins. The future redeemer is placed on Svatayam. And what the Chumash is saying is that the birth of this child, the this child, who is who's what? Who somehow manages. The point is that Moses becomes emblematic of Israel. He's put into the river and he emerges from the river. Safely. He emerges on Svatayam, one might say. They put him in the reeds by the side of the of the Yah. Will he live or will he die? We don't know. The boys, Pharaoh said, throw the boys into the river. This boy's in the river, by the edge of the river. And this is a harbinger, a foreshadowing of what's going to happen later. Now, now we have the next verse. Very important verse. His sister stood, far away. Why did she stand far away? To know what would happen to him. Very important verse. So, we could talk about this verse for a long time. So we'll see a few points. First of all, let me get back to Sarah's point earlier. The first point that is striking is that, what do you mean his sister? In the Chumash, we only know of one sister. Her name is Miriam. She figures in several stories in the Chumash, including the Song of the Sea. But here she has no name. She's called his sister. And thinking about it, not only does Miriam have no name, but the first verse of chapter 2. A man went from the house of Levi, and he married a daughter of Levi. But we know who the man is. Later, the Torah says who his father is. And only that, David tells us who Moses' mother is. It's unusual. We know the name of his mother and father, the says, a few chapters later. His father is Amram. His mother is Yocheved. So why not give us the information over here? Why delay? Tell us... Yocheved married Miriam, married Amram. Amram married, took Yocheved as a wife. No, it says a man from the house of Levi took a daughter of Levi. And now he's got his sister. So what is that about? Why is the chapter so reticent, so reluctant to give us the names of the people? And not only that, the book is so, called Shemot. Of course, and the book is called, and not just the book is called Shemot Names, the book of names. And the book begins with a bunch of names. These are the names. And the midwives have names at the end of chapter 1. Pua and Shifra, Shifra and Pua. The midwives have names. And suddenly, there's a man, there's a woman, not just man, woman, and sister, even beyond that. The boy has no name. The bo- Moshe has no name. Is that named? Right? But hey, with Ben. She doesn't name him upon birth. Not only is he not named upon birth, he's also not named when Pharaoh's daughter takes him out of the water. Yeah. He's also not named when Pharaoh's daughter gives him back to the mother. She doesn't name him either. He's only named in the chapter when the Egyptian princess takes him back afterwards that she gives him a name. 
What is that about? Well, the answer, I think, is the simple answer is the following. The simple answer is, it's not, well, maybe, but it's beyond him, the mother, the father, the sister. It's that we're talking about a people who have no idea. The issue in the book is the following, a very simple issue. We came down to Egypt with a name. What does it mean to have a name? It means to have an, 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 an identity. We knew we, 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 had, we, are, we, we came down as Jews. We came down as Jacob's children. Reuben, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Yosef. We all have names. What happens in Egypt, for any number of reasons, is we lose our identity. We have no identity. And the reason it happens is threefold. There's three reasons why I think why it happens. One of them is because the chapter one tells us this happens in many places actually. It's a good thing and a bad thing. It says the children of Israel paru vayishritzu vayirbu vayatsmu. They grew and they multiplied and they multiplied and they multiplied. For the small number of people you have thousands. That's what happens in this world when you have, a, let's say, a business. Let's say you start a little business. It's yourself, maybe your, maybe your spouse is working with you, maybe a kid, and you have three workers. And you work for several years and you do it okay. Then you add more workers, you have 10, you have 15, you have 20. And one day you decide you're going to expand the business. And you expand it to 100 and 200 and then some it's on the stock market and you have 12,000 workers. But you don't know anybody. You walk into the factory, you don't know anybody's name. You have so many people. So when you're very successful, it's very, but the individual identity is lost because the number is so great that people, there's no sense of that, the person. That ha- that's one possibility. That's more enough. The other two possibilities are two things which are very different, but, and maybe in a certain sense opposite, but they take place at the same time. What is the persecution? If they beat you down, they enslave you. A slave is not a full person. A slave is not a slave. One might say has no name because he has no identity. A slave is not making autonomous not choices. Legal, uh, what? He's not an entity. He's a possession. A slave is something that you own. A slave is not a full person. So therefore, it can be said that the slavery itself, being beaten down causes one to lose an identity, causes the people to lose an identity. And from the other side of it, from the other side, there's another way to read chapter 1, which in a way is contradicting, but I think sadly is not contradicting. And that is, that maybe the point of being in Egypt is quite the opposite, that the Jews are assimilated into Egyptian culture. In point of fact, you might say, how can those two things be true? If they're beating you, how can you assimilate? My answer would be, you're a thousand percent logically correct, but unfortunately you're a thousand percent wrong. Mm-hmm. Because you can be fully, see yourself as an Egyptian at the very same time they beat you up. And in point of fact, that is what happens in the Chumash. We know it. The Jews in the desert always want to go back to Egypt. Right. They remember the cucumbers and the watermelons, right? Because there's a security of being, not being free. Freedom means you have to make your own decisions. People don't want to make their choices. So therefore they want to rely on other people to make choices for them. People don't want to be independent in that sense. So the story of the Chumash is about the Jewish people who were beaten and enslaved, but always yearned to go back. It's crazy, but it's also very true. And they're remembering or misremembering what Egypt was about. They got watermelons and cucumbers and they got all garlic and whatever, onions. 
Yeah. They're also beating you and killing you. Okay? They, don't, they forget that. We yearn for those days. We, don't, we, we prefer to be slaves. The Torah is well aware that people prefer to be slaves because there's a whole parasha in the Chumash, parasha Bishpatim, which says, and if the slave doesn't want to leave, what do you do? The slave doesn't want to leave. So it's not something that's just hypothetical possibility. So these are the three reasons perhaps we could say the name Moses' mission should he accept it. And we see he has little choice but to accept it. Is to give the people names. To give them... In order to give them names though, something has to happen first that will be very interesting. Namely, he has to figure out who, who Moshe is. Because as we'll see, that's very interesting. He doesn't know who he is. He only knows a little bit about who he is. He doesn't really understand who God has to teach him. That's part of the first stories. That's the answer to your question about not having names. It's not an accident that there are no names. And I was, let me say something else about names, since you mentioned names, which is very important. The names of the characters in the Chumash are not actually names. In other words, they're names. The name identifies you. But the names in the Chumash are not like we have a name. We have a name, it's largely when they for somebody else, or the parents like the name, or whatever the reason is. But the names in the Chumash of the major characters actually describe the character. His name is Moshe. That's his name, right? Moshe. What does Moshe mean? What does the word Moshe name mean something? What does Moshe mean? Moshe means the one who draws out. Yeah. Right? He was drawn from the water. Pharaoh's daughter says, Moshui. I drew him from the water. If that were the case, his name should be Moshui, the one who was drawn out. But his name is not Moshui. His name is Moshe, the one who draws out. Isn't that what he does? He takes us out of Egypt. So his name describes his job, his, 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 his command. You are commanded to take them out of Egypt. And that's what his name is. His name is the person, is his mission. His name is Moshe. It's not Moshui. Even though there is a connection between those two things. And the connection, I don't mean just the word, obviously, is connected. Big, big, but for all know Hebrew? Who knows? I mean, she, right. she, 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 she knows. The Chumash knows Hebrew. Who knows? The Chumash knows Hebrew. Maybe he had some other name. Maybe he had an Egyptian name, which means that. But we don't know. But we know what the Chumash tells us. The Chumash is not concerned with that problem. How did, how did Pharaoh's daughter know Hebrew about Paro? Who knows? But the <laughs> point is that the name... And that's true of all the big names. It's true of Avram, it's true of Yaakov, it's true of Yitzchak, it's true of Yosef. All those names are not just names. The Chumash makes a big deal about the names. Your name gets changed, okay? Because your mission is changed. And you are your name, basically, in the Chumash. That's not true the way we see names today, but that is the truth. The name is your, your command, your mission, your task, or whatever. So the name is Moshe. Now let me say something else about the verse. This verse number four. The verses have infinite possibilities, you see. I mean, yes, I'll get to Hagar. That's true. Before we get to Hagar, that is a very important point. We have time to finish that. I'll mention it now since you mentioned it. The story of someone standing from afar. We had it earlier in the Chumash. That's the story of we read on Rosh Hashanah, Ishmael. They go to the desert and they run out of water. Right? Chapter 21, and Hagar is with her son Yishmael, and it said, she put him underneath the brush, right? 
she put him under the brush for she said right what does it say over there it says um she put him under the brush Ishmael in chapter 21 far away is a boshah she stands from a distance why? for she said I don't want to see the boy die so she stands far away she doesn't want to see she can't bear to see the child die so she stands far away in the case of the sister over here it's very interesting. The story of Hagar and Ishmael is referenced beyond this verse in the, the whole story references, as we'll see next week. It references the story of Ishmael. But before we get there, I want to make a different point about this verse. Because it references Ishmael, that's very important. Referencing Ishmael allows you, it's not just finding a word here and a word there. Let me say straight up. I, which means the class in this case, have zero interest in saying it appears here and appears there. Zero interest in that, except when it actually teaches us something. The question is, what do we learn from the fact, why? What does the Torah try to convey to us by putting Moshe in the position of Yishmael and the sister in the, in the position but acting differently than the mother of Yishmael, Hagar? That's the question. Not can we be clever and find the words here and there. I mean, being clever is not a bad thing if it takes you someplace. But you can't stop there. When you reference the two stories, you notice something very interesting. I would have written it differently. I'm not the Chumash. I would have said, the sister stood afar. I would have written, to see what's going to happen. But the Chumash didn't say that. The Chumash didn't say to see. The Chumash said to know, L'de'ah, to know. Why did the Chumash say L'de'ah as opposed to L'irot? The first verse is the mother sees that it's good. Yes. But this verse, which is exactly parallel to Hagar, there she said, Hagar said, I don't want to see him die. The parallel would have been, she wants to see that he's okay. She's looking. But it used a different word, L'de'ah. Now let me make the following observation about the word to know. The word to know is without question the most important word in the book of Exodus. It may be the most important word in the book of Genesis as well. But in the book of Exodus, there is not a single story, not one, in which the verb to know is not a central verb. Beginning with the first story, there emerged a new pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. Shalom Yadat Yosef. Yadat carries with a different, even a see is also not just seeing means to understand but Radat carries with it a different sense Radat is not just to know intellectually but Radat is to connect to something in a very deep way the word to know has a range of meanings often a sexual meaning actually the point is God for example in chapter end of chapter 2 when God determines to save Israel Vayarel he met the Israel. God saw the suffering of Israel. Vayeda Elohim and God knew. The Torah presents God as empathizing with, feeling the other person's suffering. The sister is not to see. The sister is to know, and to know carries with it even greater than to see. To know means to empathize, to try to fully understand. Those two things are related. 
because when you fully understand some somebody, typically you're more sympathetic because it doesn't mean you justify. Right. But when you fully understand someone, you understand the circumstances and you come to realize that the circumstances often are a factor in the person's bad behavior, which is not to justify the bad behavior. Which is why when you actually begin to look into someone's case, the, 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 the laws one law for everybody never takes into account or rarely takes into account mitigating factors. But the fact of the matter is two people do the same thing, but it's not the same thing. It's the same act, but it's not the same person. For one person we condemn it completely, and for somebody else we say it's bad, but I, I can understand it. So understanding, right, a person is an understanding person we say in English, right? It means it's a sympathetic person. Because the English even has the same... So the sister, Lidea, to see, my point is, it's underlined, the word Lidea, because it dis- it's different from Hagar. Once you determine the parallel to Hagar, and she said to not to see. But over here it doesn't say see, it says no. That means you underline the word no, because the Torah is deviating from the seeing. That's one of the, one of the key functions, maybe the key function, of the discovery of the parallels. And now there's something else. But Hagar didn't want to see. Right, she right. does. She Not just, that's right. Hagar is the opposite of Hagar. And now the question is, where does that take us? In other words, the Chumash is recall, recalling for us, we'll see next week as well, the story of Hagar is very central. The language is the language of Hagar. The question is always, what do we actually take from this? The answer is many good things. You want to suggest something? Well, uh, Hagar, originally, the plan was that she was going to be a surrogate mother. Yes. And in many ways, Miriam is kind of a surrogate mother to her brother. Okay, that's a very important point. That is one of the critical points over here. What do you mean surrogate mother? She's a mother. Initially. But she was supposed to give Initially, right. That didn't work out. Initially, the baby was supposed to be Sarah's baby. Then what happens in the story is Sarah, that doesn't work out. Sarah tortures Hagar. Hagar runs away. God says, it's your baby. And she calls the child Yishmael. And Abraham. So the parents of Yishmael turn out to be Abraham and Hagar in the first story. In the second story, Hagar's the only parent because Abraham sends him away. Or covenantal parent. We'll get to all that later. But the point is this point, that the sister is functioning in the story as a mother. She's watching over the child. She's not just a sister. She is a sister, but she's functioning, one might say, in, in, in place of the mother. Or maybe the mother and the sister working together as a tag team over here. Maybe it's all planned. Maybe she's watching to see if there's a moment where she can step in and save her brother. That's also possible. But the point of it is the following. If she's functioning as a mother, kind of mother, she's also a sister. I'm not saying she's not a sister. Sister, mother, and Moses has a mother who actually takes the child and hides the child. She hides the child. What's curious then in the story is we have to stop at this point. We'll continue next week. What's, who's missing in this story then? The mother. Well, the mother's there. No, the mother's not watching, but the mother does care for him. No, the hides him. The mother hides him. The sister watches him. So where is daddy is the problem where is the father in the story the father actually is not mentioned in, by the way in the case of Hagar it's the same thing Yishmael has only one parent 
Abraham is not he's his father he loves him this that but he throws him out he sends him out to the desert with the water with the food they get lost and the story of Ishmael is basically about his parent that she's not doing a very good job she abandons him in a way she's, you can sympathize with her but she does abandon him I don't want to see the child die which for the Chumash is the wrong response you got to be with someone in their suffering okay we got all that but now the question is placing Miriam as a Hagar figure accentuates a different problem where is the father over here the, he, her two parents his two parents as it were are two women where is the father there is a father here it's not a modern marriage of two women it's not that there is a father but where is he where is the guy where is this guy that is the question the Chumash will take up in chapter 3 mm-hmm. I am the God of your father Moses has to discover his father now he has a father but it's very surprising who the father is we'll get there in any event there's more here I want to talk about we have to stop so we did how many verses yes it's four, we almost finished four verses I want to give you a sense of what I mean there's more give you a sense look I can't take the full credit for this the Chumash is awesome that's what you're doing but we have to be able to read it it's so by the way I mentioned a couple of Mepharshim here but basically it's the text you start with the text you can't actually understand the Mepharshim before you study the text you have to appreciate what they're seeing the Midrash Rashi the Midrash the Ramban starts all with the text okay we'll continue next time chapter 21 of Genesis chapter 21 of Genesis verse, what verse is it? find the verse chapter 21 verse number well it starts in the beginning uh, he throws them out in verse 14 chapter 21 verse 14 they go in the desert um, she abandons him in verse 15 and 16 God responds in 17.